This podcast is sponsored by Allianz Investment Management, LLC, issuer of defined outcome ETFs that give investors a level of risk mitigation to help them navigate current and future markets. As part of the Allianz Group, one of the largest asset management and diversified insurance companies in the world, Allianz Investment Management, LLC, maintains a long track record of developing and executing risk management strategies across the globe. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. For a prospectus with this and other information, visit AllianceIM.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Hello, and welcome to Inside ETFs, the podcast where we bring the latest and greatest ETF industry perspectives directly to you through in-depth discussions with key thought leaders from across the ETF ecosystem. I'm your host, Douglas Jonas, the head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. Now, today I'm joined by Jan Van Eck. Jan is the CEO of Van Eck, a global investment manager with offices around the world. Headquartered in New York City since 1955, the over $80 billion firm has a long history of empowering investors with thoughtfully designed mutual funds and ETFs. Jan joined the firm in 1991 and became the CEO in 2011. More importantly, he founded the firm's ETF business in 2006. As one of the world's largest ETF sponsor, the firm offers ETFs globally across a variety of equity and fixed income asset classes, not to mention now digital asset classes. Jan, thank you very much for being here with us today. Oh, it's great to be on here. Thank you. So Jan, let's just get right into it. You know, how did you way back look at the ETF business and decide, yeah, that's for me? I think, you know, the way I think about running a business is to, to run it a little paranoid. I like to say, I just want to be in business in 10 years. And uh, the, the ETF uh, had been, you know, invented by 2006, had been around, I think, for at least five years you could see that it was gaining incredibly fast adoption from a very, obviously, very low base. And so uh, just felt that this would be an area, especially because gold shares, people like to, you know, invest in gold shares tactically, you know, rather than a long-term hold, they like to trade in and out. And since gold shares was our largest mutual fund by far at the time, it made sense to cannibalize ourselves rather than let someone else do it to us. So... That was, uh, that was the basic history, and GDX started trading pretty, pretty well day one. Yeah, it's a, big, it's a big step. It's certainly a big leap, and, and that is a decision still happening across the industry today. Firms have to decide, do I potentially cannibalize a portion of my business with the growth aspects, uh, aspects of, of being much larger as a result? You know, the, the, you've been there since the beginning. Uh, and now here we are closing out 2021 ETFs in the U.S. crossing $7 trillion in assets under management. How have some of the major milestones evolved to you over the course of your career so far? Well, I think the, the ETF business is, it's, you know, I'd say, Douglas, the most amazing thing is that it continues to be innovative. I mean, honestly, five years ago, you would have thought, well, so everyone's thought of every ETF that could be out there. So the history of our business, I would say, is kind of in two phases. Uh, first of all, we we had this theory of don't launch an ETF uh, if an ETF already exists. So we launched gold shares, we launched Russia, we launched Vietnam, we launched agriculture shares, Moo, um, and there, there were no ETFs. 
And then I think, uh, you know, we sort of switched to a second phase where we said, well, let's maybe take a different approach to an asset class. And uh, so that maybe there's an ETF in a particular area, but rather just offer it at a cheaper price. Maybe there's a different weighting scheme, uh, a different security selection methodology. Maybe we could make it more liquid in our minds, right? There's lots of ways of tweaking. And so uh, I would say the second phase of our ETF business has been offering ETFs that have that kind of differentiated exposure that we think is interesting to investors. Um, I would say just for those of you who don't know Van Eck, historically, we're very much of what I would call a macro firm. So if people say, well, are you growth? Are you value? What, you know, what's your style? And I would say, you know, the reason the firm got into international investing in 55 and then launched the first gold fund in 1968 is from a macro perspective uh, with this looking at the major monetary fiscal trends in the world technology trends and saying, okay, here's someone's portfolio today, but it's really kind of missing what, where the world is going. Um, and that's kind of been our overall approach. And uh, so that's, that's kind of what led us to, to gold and ETFs as well. So I'm an investment advisor. I bump into you at a barbecue or a cocktail party and I find out your background. I think the first question I probably say to you is, well, do you have a favorite ETF? Uh, well, I don't know. Favorite all time has got to be our, our first ETF, um, uh, which is GDX. And then uh, we, we are very proud of uh, Moo, uh, our agriculture ETF, just because I think that was one of the first ETFs to have a ticker symbol with a little bit of a sense of humor and sort of marketing approach. And that's pretty common. So I think those two um, are, are ones that, you know, we like a lot. Uh, I think if you're asking about, you know, the financial uh, opportunities and what I would be buying and selling now, I'm, I'm happy to go into that as well. Is that is that what you're thinking? Sure. I, let's take it where you would like to go. All right. So I think right now it's actually pretty tough to figure out what to do with people's portfolios because fixed income is really just, you know, not offering high yield for the most part without taking substantial credit risk. And equity markets have done so well, uh, you, you want to keep investing in equities, but um, I don't think there's a, a glaring disconnect between value and growth the way there was a year ago, right? In the middle of the pandemic, growth stocks were just going to the moon. And I think, you know, what, what, what we said uh, in the summer of 2020 is this growth outperformance is going to calm down. Like the market is more going to be more efficient. Nothing is, is that obvious. And, uh, and indeed growth and value, there's been some ra radical jigs and jags um, from month to month, but generally speaking, they've kind of kept in pace with each other. So there's no obvious trade. Um, what we're focusing on, what we think is investable are two, I would call a multi-year investment trend opportunities, but they're, they're difficult. Um, one is uh, difficult because one's value trade that's been painful. And the other is because it's a sort of a, a little bit of an overvalued growth situation. Uh, but the two trades are, uh, number one, inflation and the multi-year combined with the multi-year transition to sustainable energy and away from fossil fuels. 
And uh, so that's a basic, uh, you know, we've been in a 10 year bear market for commodities in any inflationary cycle. And we're in an inflationary cycle. There are several things that do well. Commodities do well, commodity stocks do well, and gold has done well. Now, equities have done okay. Fixed income has not done well. So if you look at those, um, how is this cycle, inflationary cycle, going to be different? First of all, uh, and we can talk more about it, but I'll just footnote, gold is now, I think, a gold and Bitcoin trade. There are a lot of people that are looking at government spending who want or traditional gold buyers, but they are also buying Bitcoin. So we can talk more about that later. But so gold in this cycle is augmented with Bitcoin. Commodity equities is probably a little bit even more dramatically affected because it is very affected by ESG. On the, on the positive side for investors, there's less supply. It's much harder to get mines going because of environmental concerns. So when you have the same demand and less supply, then you definitely have a good you know, investment horizon. And I would say, um, in addition, the move towards electric vehicles is giving a lot of demand to things like uh, gr what we call green metals. We just launched a, a green metals ETF. Uh, those metals are actually net positive for the environment, uh, but there's going to be so there's going to but it's going to be hard to produce them. So you've got this great multi-year transition trend. You've got demand. The whole world is demanding greener and more sustainable production across the industries, but and they've got less supply. So that's great. So Jan, what's the problem? The problem is ESG. I think is also a depressing demand for those stocks. Right, commodity stocks are kind of today's tobacco stocks in a way, and what that means is that uh, valuations uh, or or the price to earnings ratio, what you would pay for those stocks, may not go up the way they have in prior cycles. So I think that's kind of the that's kind of the trade off. Now, having said that, I think the downside to commodities is really low. Um, you know, not to say they can't correct a little bit. But if as long as the world economy grows a little bit because of constrained supply, that's so that's trade number one. Sorry for the, the long explanation, but it's painful because you're looking at a value sector. You've been in a 10 year bear market for commodity equities. And anytime anyone bought OIH or any kind of commodity equity fund in the last two years, you got punched in the face uh, because there was some kind of well, first of all, obviously you had COVID. But then you have maybe China slow down or any kind of concern. So the answer is dollar cost average. Now, for still to barbecue, the person's probably walked away by now. But let me let me talk about the other, the second trade um, that we're focused on, which is uh, you know effectively a multi-year fintech disruption augmented by crypto. And you know I don't really need to go into the long explanation here. But we think that cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology will have a very disruptive effect on payments, uh, lending and borrowing, and, and also even, even the financial markets. And payments is the easiest example uh, for 2021. There's not a single major payments company now that doesn't offer Bitcoin, right? PayPal, Square, Venmo, even Twitter, you can, you can pay people. So that's just... That's just one example. And then I'll give you um, my Thanksgiving Day party question, because if you're in a 
with 10 family members is going to be someone who doesn't believe in crypto and digital assets and they make fun of you and they say, yeah, the taxi driver likes it and there's Dogecoin and it's a bunch of garbage. So, so Douglas, here's my one question that you can ask them. What is the economic value of all the transactions that happened on the Ethereum blockchain this year? So Ethereum is just a database. So don't, I'm not going to overcomplicate it, right? But it's a database that a lot of other applications use, like NFTs, for example, was the summer trend, which I won't get into too much here. Um, so do you have any guess? Uh, I, I don't have a guess, but I know you'll be the expert. So so fire away, hit me. Come on, give me a ballpark. Okay, uh, just because we're talking about it, I have to assume there's economic value there. So I'm going to say uh, $10 million. Three and a half trillion. Three and a half trillion. Now, it's, it's sort of like NYSE volume in a sense, because there's a lot of financial transactions and there's buying and selling back and forth. But still, that... I, <laughs> That is just a tremendous amount of financial transactions happening on, you know, one of the digital asset databases, right? So anyway, so I think 2021 has been a big year for, uh, for crypto, not just people focus on the price of Bitcoin, the price of Ethereum, but underlying it, the amount of economic activity, you know, 2017, it was a joke. Now it's real. And so we think that will just continue to grow. Uh, you know, there's $20 billion of revenue from transactions that's been generated on Ethereum. That's just, that's a, that's a growth enterprise, whatever you want to call it. So we think that's going to continue to grow going forward. Um, and now to get back to the pain point, I told you that we have the pain of the commodities trade. The pain of, of digital assets is they're expensive. <laughs> there's not a lot of value you know, the crowd and everyone has recognized the potential of these digital assets. So, you know, some of the public companies, sometimes they're cheap, but sometimes they run up to insane multiples of 40 or 50 times earnings. And so uh, I guess my you know, advice um, is the same to the, at, the, at the barbecue, which is, listen, buy a little now. And that's where people make the big mistake, right? They hear about this and they never buy a little because they're always thinking they're buying at the top. Just buy a little now and buy a little later. So anyway, those are those are two of the the kind of you know multi-year investment trends that I think are worthwhile for investors to get involved with. Thank you for that. And I don't want to leave the once you say the B word, the Bitcoin word, we have to stay on there for just one more moment before we leave the topic. You know, Vanek, you you just recently launched uh, a Bitcoin ETF. You've been in this space for a long time. Uh, how should investors think about buying the ETF versus, you know, trying to go out and, and buy directly, whether it be through one of the, you know, marketplaces or through an app, you know, what are your thoughts there for, for an investor or an advisor? Well, I think the most important thing to do, right, is to construct a portfolio that's balanced and that, um, you know, meets an investor's overall needs. And, and so I think the biggest Buying stuff on Coinbase or Gemini is is great, um, but the, you just have to make sure that it's um, you know within a portfolio that makes sense for the investor. And so, what what I would advise is that you have some kind of inflation trade on, 
um, in one form or another. So I mentioned commodities, commodity equities, gold and Bitcoin kind of as being part of that bundle. And then that bundle, because we don't know if inflation disappears next year or if it continues to rage and really cause havoc with the financial markets, you know, make that a position in your portfolio, let's say anywhere from three to 10 percent. Right. And then Bitcoin should be, I think, absolutely. And I've been saying this for 2017, part of that. And uh, just to, to riff on Bitcoin a little bit, I think it's in this multi-year maturation process as an asset, as a store of value. And in 2017, I wrote a blog with a colleague that said, Lex, and Bitcoin can go down 90%. And it did, because that's what it done in prior cycles. Uh, but what we said a year ago is like, no, institutions are coming in. There's buyers. I think 50% correction is more likely to, to, to think about the risk. And that's what happened this year, right? It kind of went up to 60,000 and went down to 30,000. So I think you're in the middle innings of Bitcoin becoming a more, a more mature asset. Um, so I just, but, but people have to kind of have in mind what the downside is. Now, stocks went down 50% last year too. So <laughs> it's not like the rest of your portfolio isn't, isn't, uh, isn't volatile. Um, I think what, you know, we, we, our fund, our ETF, uh, BXTF, invests in Bitcoin futures. Uh, again, without going into details, investing in any futures, any fund that invests in futures means it can deviate from the actual price of spot Bitcoin. I think investors know that. We're trying to do our best to explain that. Uh, so far, that's meant that you're underperforming in a bull market. Uh, the other issue is there are tax nuances, and, and we think we've done a, um, a, a, for taxable investors, we think our fund is, is structured a little bit better. And, you know, it's only, it's only been a week or so, but I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, people do like the convenience of ETFs. I know Douglas is crazy for us to say on an ETF podcast, right? But there, there are, I would have thought everyone would have bought Bitcoin by now, but you know, there's still, there's still demand for the liquidity transparency of ETFs. Absolutely, right? Just, just tremendous tailwinds for ETFs. People love the vehicle. People want to use it over, over any other vehicle. So it makes a lot of sense. Jan, you spend a lot of time both in the international markets as well as tracking the international markets. I need to get your opinions on China. How should investors, how should advisors be looking at the China trade? Is this uh, the opportunity of, of the next few years, or is this a red flag and something we should be, you know, really, really trimming back here? Yeah, we, we have an office in China and we, I, I guess my overall view of the world is there's only two growth engines to the world. The U S and China is radical oversimplification. So investors need to understand what's happening in China, whether they like China politics or whatever, or not. It doesn't matter. If you look at the last decade of global growth, there's been two engines and it's been the US and China. Okay, so, uh, so having said that, that doesn't mean you have to invest there. I, I think China has undergone a, a lot of changes and I will say that political concerns are uh, an issue for US investors and that's really up to investors to decide. Uh, but what China has done this year is really de-risked their financial system by allowing companies to go bankrupt. Um, and, and they had sort of said, hey, listen, we're not guaranteeing every loan from every state-owned company or private company. 
but a lot of a lot of investors in China kind of assumed that they would never let uh, companies go uh, bankrupt. They did let private companies go bankrupt this year, and they let a state-owned company go bankrupt this year. Um, and that just that's a great way of signaling because. You know, we have funds that invest in the Chinese bond markets, and there's a lot of global funds from big firms like Vanguard and BlackRock that invest in China. It's, it's, it's much healthier that they're allowing for risk and for bankruptcies to make sure there's not bubbles in those economies. So that's what I would say, number one. Number two, property has been a big sector for their economic growth, and they're trying to, to rebalance away from property in a, in a prudent manner. Um, and right now china is going through a slowdown so there i don't know if you call it a recession but when they're um the pmi is a growth indicator when that goes below 50 there's pressure on the manufacturing side of the chinese economy services is always growing so i would say that um you know the, the, all those things are in a way healthier for investors i'm looking at the tech stocks and trying to figure out i've been starting to nibble at them and so it hasn't been super fun, um, but uh, you know I think that that there, there's for for those of you who are willing to be a little bit of contrarian, I think Chinese uh, equities maybe over the next six or nine months would be something that you'd rather be adding rather than selling, just because valuations are cheap. So so Jan, clearly you know the Vanek ETF lineup, your business globally has been very successful. Fun fact, the New York Stock Exchange, we've launched almost 50 brand new ETF issuers to the market this year alone. So if you try and average that out, it's, it's almost every single week this year, a new ETF issuer has come to market. What are your top keys to success? You know, how, how have you done it? What does it take to be successful in the ETF industry? Uh, well, you know, I, I call our ETFs handcrafted beers. You know, we really look at, at each, um, you know, kind of on its own and try to make sure uh, that we're not just, you know, copying something that's out there. Um, now, sometimes that works and sometimes investors are not interested, uh, but that's really been our approach. I think that uh, secondly, uh, because the marketplace is so crowded, Douglas, you didn't really say it like that, but it is. Um, we've, we've done a lot of um, ETFs that are kind of within the same basket. Like, so we have like a little family of muni bond funds, HYD and ITM. Uh, we have a family of natural resource oriented equity stocks, obviously. Uh, we have a family, one of our most successful ETFs is uh, Morningstar Wide Moat, um, ETF MOAT. And so we have a, a sort of family, we have an international version, a global version. Now we have an ESG version of that. So I think that we're not alone, but definitely issuers that can focus on a particular story, a value-added story, uh, that is the only way in such a crowded marketplace, I think, to, to kind of build an edge or at least a unique identity. Uh, which which everyone needs. So that would that would be my two cents. I can't believe fifty new companies. That's amazing. It is amazing, and and uh, the growth just continues. I, you know, Jan, you you've got a great lineup. I I have to imagine somewhere in there you're looking at one of your ETFs and you're saying, I I, I don't get it. This is a fantastic play. It's a fantastic spot for a portfolio. Why why has that this ETF 
not taken off yet. Is there anything that surprises you that, that you just feel like it, it should have seen the, seen its light of day and maybe, you know, anyone listening in could go take a look? Um, you know, the, I, I, we launched um, some, uh, you know, we, we have uh, we, we have a very successful high yield ETF called Fallen Angel, ANGL. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what would be an interesting approach to the investment grade markets. And so we partnered with Moody's Analytics um, to come up with some investment grade uh, funds that came out last year. I really like them. Uh, they've outperformed uh, their asset classes, but yes, investor interest has been tepid. Um, I would say, you know, but given the fact that, you know, a lot of fixed income funds are down on the year, uh, it's not really surprising that investors aren't looking to add um, to fixed income, right? So it's a little bit of like, great fund, but, you know, running into a hurricane of lack of interest, um, you know, with the concerns about rising interest rates. So um, those, those would be the ones that would come to mind. So if I'm an advisor, I'm heading into the end of 2021, uh, starting to look at 2022, you know, if, if you're coming up in front of a group of advisors, you know, what, what should they be watching? Is there something that could surprise them, both good or bad, uh, as, as we start to think about portfolio allocation, right, heading into next year? Yeah, we've um, overall been um, positive on the markets because the way I describe it is the world economy came into 2021 like a car driving 200 miles an hour. You know, the stimulus post-COVID was insane, uh, especially in the developed markets. And so the car had to slow down. Um, and, and I think the biggest concern that the markets have right now, does the Fed slam on the brakes, right? Um, and, you know, I've always said, look, I don't think so, right? Since the financial crisis, I can't even remember before the financial crisis, but, you know, since 2009, right, the Fed has always stepped in through quantitative easing or whatever to support uh, the financial markets, you know, support the economy ultimately, but to support the financial markets. And I just don't see them slamming on the brakes. Having said that, what would surprise me and surprise financial advisors, I think, is if there was a perception the Fed really had gotten behind the curve and they suddenly do something like that. And that would not be fun for stocks and bonds, right? That would be that, you know, there would be a lot of damage in portfolios um, during that. So you never know. That's a a lower probability scenario for me, less than 25%, but that's, that's definitely a scenario. Is there, is there something that you're watching for uh, a sign in the economy, a sign from, you know, government spending, right? We've got infrastructure bill uh, that you're looking for to say, Hey, th this is what I'm looking for for the next spark that the economy is going to, going to make the next run. I think the, I think the amount of innovation and, you know, that's happening in the, in the economy is, is amazing. I, you know, I, uh, if you just think about, you know, COVID and, and the, uh, you know, the vaccines that were developed so quickly, and now you have a whole new platform for a new type of technology. I think, I think that's happening in, in the financial markets through FinTech. I think it's happening throughout our economy and uh, it should really lead to, you know, a growth in, in, economic uh, and, and financial well-being. So I, you know, I'm really bullish on the US economy 
in its ability to, to innovate and to change. Just think about how much it's adapted during, during COVID. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it sometimes causes painful disruptions, but we do have very flexible labor markets and we have great technology. So I, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to sound so la-di-da, but um, you know, that I, I'm not looking for a particular, you know, innovation. I see so much innovation in uh, with, with digital assets um, every, every day. It's just, it's just unbelievable. The kind of applications that might evolve. So Sorry to ramble on, but that's that's really I, I'm just I, I'm just that's why I continue to be so invested in equities. I'm just so enthusiastic. Well, it's never wrong to end on a positive note. Uh, of course, anyone that's looking to follow Jan or or look into his his blog posts, which clearly seem to predict the digital asset markets, you can learn more about his ETFs as well as a lot of his uh, thoughts and his thought leadership at Vanek.com. That's a wrap on this edition of the Inside ETFs podcast. Thank you, Jan, for being here to share your insights. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes featuring thought leaders from across the ETF ecosystem. I'm Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded funds at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. This podcast is sponsored by Allianz Investment Management, LLC, issuer of defined outcome ETFs that give investors a level of risk mitigation to help them navigate current and future markets. As part of the Allianz Group, one of the largest asset management and diversified insurance companies in the world, Allianz Investment Management LLC maintains a long track record of developing and executing risk management strategies across the globe. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. For a prospectus with this and other information, visit AllianzIM.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.